This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Jim Hightower, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, Melissa Harris-Perry, and The Majority Report. Uh, however, today's episode is a little different than usual. Since the origins of today's story go all the way back to 2011, I figured that's where we would also start. So Jim Hightower originally wrote and recorded this first clip way back in August of 2011. If Rick Snyder ever comes to help you, run away as fast and as far as you can. Snyder is the right-wing corporate-hugging governor of Michigan, whose extremist anti-worker, anti-government agenda was handed to him by a Koch-funded front group named the Mackinac Center. Included in the package was a doozy of autocratic mischief-making called the Local Government Fiscal Accountability Act. The new law turned Snyder into a perverse hybrid of a Soviet czar and a ten-horned banana republic potentate, and it has infuriated the public. Now trying to backpedal, the governor's new line is that it's about helping communities. Helping? This law allows him to seize control of any city, county, school district, etc. that he decides is in fiscal trouble, authorizing him to appoint an emergency manager, which may be a private corporation, to run the entity. This autocratic region is empowered to cancel labor contracts, repeal the public budget, privatize government assets, dismiss elected officials, and even dissolve the local entity. This is the kind of help that a fox brings to the hen house. So the governor is now being sued by his own astonished citizenry. Snyder's tyrannical law, they point out, violates the state's constitution by usurping the right of local residents to elect their officials. As the director of a community legal group in Detroit puts it, the governor's designated emergency manager would control all, including the right to enact or repeal local ordinances. This is Jim Hightower saying, you might be thinking, thank goodness I don't live in Michigan. But if Snyder's anti-democratic coup succeeds there, you can bet that various coke-backed right-wing front groups will bring the Michigan model to your state. For information on the Michigan fight, contact Detroit's Sugar Law Center at www.sugarlaw.org. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Okay, now we're going to fast forward just a bit. Rachel Maddow was all over this story from the very beginning as well. Skipping ahead just eight months, this clip is from her from April 2012. News from the great state of Michigan tonight where we have been reporting on a drive to overturn one of the most radical new laws in the country. In its current form, the one passed by Republicans last year, Michigan's emergency manager law lets the state take over cities and school districts. The state overrules the choices made by local elections and instead hands authority over to a single unelected overseer who gets unilateral control. An emergency manager can sell off the town's property, can cancel the contracts, they can move to dissolve the town. They get to say how much power the local elected officials retain. If an emergency manager wants, he or she can take that power, can take all the power from local elected officials, and never mind who the voters pick to represent them, democracy does not apply at the local level. But democracy, it turns out, is hard to give up. 
Opponents of the law organized a petition drive to put the law on the ballot for a citizen's repeal in Michigan. In February, they delivered their petitions to the state, saying that they turned in more than enough signatures to get the referendum on the November ballot. Last week, another group challenged those petitions. Their top objection was that the font on the petitions themselves is a hair too small. And so no matter how many Michiganders sign those petitions to get rid of the emergency manager thing, they say the Board of State canvassers must throw all the petitions out based on font size. The group that is so outraged by the font size is the project of a Republican consulting firm. The font size challengers have the same address and the same phone number as the Republican firm. The firm's senior counsel is the spokesman for the your font size is too small effort. One of the three partners in that firm, hey look at that, one of the three partners in the firm also serves on the board of state canvassers. That's the board who gets to make the decision on this. He gets to make the decision about the font size challenge being brought by the group that lives inside his office. He is both the pitcher throwing the baseball and the umpire saying whether or not that pitch was a ball or a strike. And he has not said whether he will step aside or whether he will stay in the game and play both roles. Michigan state law says it's his choice to make. But wait, there's more. Turns out it's not just that one guy and that one guy's problem. Oh, Michigan, you are amazing. Uh, it turns out there is another member of that same board who has exactly the same kind of problem. Another one of the four people on this board works as the political coordinator for a Michigan union. A Michigan union that has a petition drive going for a referendum on union rights. Before collecting signatures, her union asked the Board of State canvassers, including their own political coordinator who sits on that board, to approve their petition. And when they did that, in March, the union's political coordinator voted for her own union's petition. She joined the other three board members in approving the petition. She stayed in the game as pitcher and umpire. Just as, so far, the Republican guy has, too, on the emergency manager thing. And she says it's okay. The union rep, the Democrat in this case, she says it's okay because the four-member board is supposed to be made of partisans. She says, quote, what makes the system fair is that it takes three votes on the board of canvassers to do anything. So why not step aside and let the other three people who don't have a conflict of interest vote on this? Because everybody on the board could have a conflict of interest that somehow makes all of the conflicts okay? This is seriously how Michigan is handling its democracy? In order to get something voted on, on the left or the right, you have to run this gauntlet where the deciders, the gatekeepers, all have huge direct conflicts of interest, but we've decided that nobody cares about that? My favorite part about covering what's going on in Michigan right now is all the scolding we get from the Michigan press about us reporting on things that are shocking and backward and anti-democratic in Michigan, but that they say we should not report on nationally because in Michigan, they don't care about it. <laughs> we keep getting all of this pushback from Michigan press. Ah, back off. In Michigan, we don't care about this stuff. We don't see it as all that bad. Why don't you see it as all that bad? This week, a former emergency manager in Michigan spoke out about the way the state of Michigan is running things these days. Michael Stampfler is his name. He was the second emergency manager assigned to the city of Pontiac. Governor Rick Snyder replaced him in September. In part, the Snyder administration tells us because as emergency manager, Mr. Stampfler recommended giving the city of Pontiac to the county, essentially letting go of Pontiac, having it just become a place in Oakland County. After having been an emergency manager, after having been willing to essentially dissolve the city he was put in charge of, 
Michael Stampler, this guy, is now blowing the whistle on the law that empowered him to do all that. He now says, quote, I do not believe emergency managers can be successful. They abrogate the civic structure of the community for a period of years, then return it virtually dismantled for the community to attempt to somehow make a go of it. A guy who's been there, who has been put in unilateral control of an American city, says putting someone in unilateral control of an American city doesn't exactly prepare that city for good governance and for standing on its own two feet in the future. Yeah, right, right? Mr. Sampler is planning on giving his whistleblower speech on Michigan's radical emergency manager law next week at a Rotary Club in Wyandotte, which is just south of Detroit. As much as it apparently infuriates the press in Michigan for us to be the ones saying it, it seems like this whistleblower guy might be important for a state trying to figure out how its democracy went all cockeyed. Provided, of course, that you care if your democracy in your state has gone all cockeyed. Ah, yes, 2012. It was a simpler time. Just a few months after that clip, we were scoffing at Mitt Romney as he assured us that corporations were, in fact, people. And billions of people, for reasons I never understood, watched Gangnam Style on YouTube. Uh, so now, let's catch up to the present. And I know, I know, this is some pretty heavy, hit-you-over-the-head foreshadowing. And it's pretty obvious that something terrible is going to happen. Uh, so now let's jump all the way forward to just last month, mid-December 2015, and hear the rest of this story play out in chronological order from then up to just a few days ago. We turn now to Flint, Michigan, where the city's mayor made a stunning declaration on Monday. I, Mayor Karen W. Weaver, declare a state of emergency in the city of Flint, effective December 14, 2015. The state of emergency was declared to address a man-made disaster, lead poisoning in the city's water supply. Last year, the city's unelected emergency manager switched the city's water source from the Detroit system to the long-polluted Flint River in an attempt to save money. Michigan has the most sweeping emergency management laws in the country, which allow the governor to appoint a single person to run financially troubled cities. From 2013 to 2014, 52% of Michigan's African American residents lived under emergency management, compared to only 2% of white residents. These unelected emergency managers have the power to break union contracts, shut down fire departments, dissolve public school systems, and, as in Flint, switch the source of the city's drinking water. A study released in September found the proportion of children under five in Flint, Michigan, with elevated lead levels in their blood nearly doubled following the switch. Flint residents filed a federal lawsuit accusing the city and state of endangering their health by exposing them to dangerous lead levels in their tap water. Despite switching back to the Detroit water supply in October after enormous outcry, newly elected mayor Karen Weaver, the first woman mayor of Flint, said lead levels remain higher than the federal threshold in many homes. She said not enough has been done to address the crisis. And so far, what we've had is Band-Aid fixes. We have the filter programs. We have talked about diets for lead exposure. And don't get me wrong, we want these things to continue. We need all of that. 
Earlier this year, the ACLU of Michigan released a mini-documentary about the water crisis in Flint called Hard to Swallow. This clip begins with Pastor Alfred Harris, a member of Concerned Pastors for Social Action. On one side was the city of Flint's finances, and on the other side was the health of the citizens of Flint. We've had three or four boil water advisories. The rashes, the hair loss, the muscle stiffness, the soreness. My family broke out in a rash that we were told looks like scabies, but it wasn't scabies. We are joined now by two guests. Kirk Guyette is an investigative reporter for the ACLU of Michigan who helped expose the lead contamination. Also with us is Flint resident Melissa Mays. She and her three children have been diagnosed with lead and copper poisoning. She's the founder of What Are You Fighting For? A Flint, Michigan-based research and advocacy organization founded around Flint's water crisis. Um, let's begin with Kirk. Tell us how you discovered what was taking place. How did Flint, which for years had gotten their water from Detroit, why was this switch made? And then even when the switch was made, describe the water, what residents were finding, and what eventually happened. Well, as you said in your introduction, the switch was made because an unelected uh, state-appointed emergency manager had total control over the city and in order to save money the decision was made to switch from the Detroit system which they had been on for 50 years to the Flint River and the Flint River uh, is horribly corroded and compounding that problem was the state's decision their inexplicable decision not to add corrosion control phosphates as Detroit does so they went from a situation where the water was clean and, and safe to where it was dangerous and more in need of corrosion control than ever, and they inexplicably stopped using it. And that corrosive water without the corrosion control phosphates in it just began tearing up the pipes and uh, destroying the biofilm that had uh, been built up that kept the uh, lead from leaching into the water and it began leaching into the water. Uh, and how I found out about this is that it's this is a citizen driven thing. It was the activists, uh, people like Melissa, that uh, kept pushing, 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 refused to believe the claims by the city and state that the water was safe. Uh, there, there's an unsung hero in all this, uh, an EPA uh, employee named Miguel Del Toro, who took a personal interest in Flint, went there, began to investigate, found out what was going on, found out what was going on with the corrosion and the lead leaching into the water. He uh, gave a copy of that memo to one of the residents that he had been working with, Leanne Walters, and because of that a documentary that we had produced, taking the concern seriously, uh, Leanne trusted us to uh, investigate and gave the memo to us, and we published it, and that set off a, a train reaction of events that led us to where we are now. And Melissa Mays, can you talk about when you first learned that there was a problem with your water supply? 
Well, a few months after the switch, we had already noticed rashes on my kids' arms, their backs, my face, and they were different because you couldn't put any kind of lotion or cream on it without it burning. It felt like straight-out chemical burns. And every once in a while, our water would turn bright blue or yellow, and we had no idea why. They kept telling us that the water was fine. We had three boil advisories which were not well published. We didn't find out until the third one that we had been drinking and cooking with E. Coli-laden water. Um, so a lot of residents had started coming to the city council meetings and talking about how their water was brown and orange because there were some days it would smell like a sewer, some days it would smell like an old pond, and some days your tap water smelled like a swimming pool. So we knew that there were problems, we just didn't realize how bad until we re um, received notice in January, nine months after the switch, that for the previous nine months our water was also full of a carcinogen byproduct called total trihalomethanes and that's with the overchlorination interacting with the, the, the organic compounds in our water um, when we saw when we got that notice we had just had enough so we started protesting we wanted answers we called for meetings we called for um, actual research being done and they wouldn't give us or couldn't give us any answers so people were getting sick across the city and we all had similar symptoms with hair loss and the rashes and the muscle pain, the cramps, and this is before we even knew anything about the lead, and it was already just a downward spiral from there. So in September, scientists from Virginia Tech, that's Virginia Tech in Virginia, held a news conference to share their findings from the test that they ran on water samples from Flint. Afterward, two city officials faced questions from the ACLU and Flint residents. In this clip from the ACLU mini-documentary, Hard to Swallow, Howard Croft, Flint's director of public utilities, tries to explain why Flint switched to the Flint River for its water talking about Detroit that had over a billion dollars of infrastructure costs coming that we could see and we were kicked off their system. Just address it. I have a letter from Darnell Early saying the city of Flint has decided not to return to the, not to continue using Detroit water. There were correct um, is that correct? I think evaluation has gone on all the way up to the state level uh, on what would the best course of action would be for the city of Flint, and that was determination. All the way to the governor's office? All the way to the governor's office. Kurt Gayette, can you talk about the significance of this? Yes. Uh, for a long time, a variety of officials kept... Uh, claiming falsely that they didn't have any choice, that uh, Detroit kicked them off of the uh, Detroit system, and because of that, they were forced to use the Flint River. And that, that was simply not true. It, it was an economic decision on the part of the emergency manager appointed by Governor Snyder to leave the Detroit system. Uh, and but they didn't want to take responsibility for that. By, by lying and saying they didn't have any choice, there was no culpability on their part. But the truth is that they are culpable because it was a conscious decision, a decision made purely to save money for no other reason. And so the, the significance of that is that we put an end to that lie. Uh, they, they can no longer say that they didn't have a choice. It was a choice, and they are responsible for this disaster. That's the significance of that. You're a disaster. Does anything matter to you? Do you ever 
Put your feet to the ground Underneath Faster and faster Straight for disaster You're a disaster And it makes all the laughter Look sad So pull up your socks Or crash into the rocks You're headed for What are you after If not disaster we begin our show today in Flint, Michigan, where a growing number of residents are demanding the arrest of Michigan Governor Rick Snyder over the ongoing water contamination crisis. Governor Snyder declared a state of emergency for Flint on Wednesday after learning federal prosecutors had opened an investigation into the lead contamination of the drinking water. Lead can cause permanent health impacts, including memory loss and developmental impairment. The poisoning began after an unelected emergency manager appointed by Michigan Governor Snyder switched Flint's water source to the long-polluted Flint River in a bid to save money. Researchers at Virginia Tech who've been testing Flint water say the city could have corrected the problem by better treating the water at a cost of as little as a hundred dollars a day. On Thursday, Mayor of Flint revealed it could now cost as much as 1.5 billion dollars to fix the city's water infrastructure. For over a year, Flint residents have complained about the quality of the water, but their cries were ignored by state officials. In February, tests showed alarming levels of lead in the water, but officials told residents there was no threat. That same month, an EPA official named Miguel del Toro wrote an email to the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality warning about lead contamination. No action was taken. He wrote another email in April to the EPA. Then in July, Governor Snyder's chief of staff, Dennis Muchmore, wrote an email to health officials admitting Flint residents are, quote, basically getting blown off by us, unquote. On Thursday, Governor Snyder apologized again for what happened in Flint. This is a situation that no one wished would have ever happened. But it has happened, and we want to be open and honest to say, let's address it proactively. Let's go after the issues, both in terms of solving what historically, what damage has been done, but also being proactive to prevent future damage, and then to do good follow-up to say how we can help people that may have had higher lead levels. So this is a very comprehensive approach, and hopefully you can see we're taking this extremely seriously in terms of the declaration this week. Um, the advisory group, I asked to look into it. As each case, as they've come forward with recommendations, I think we've acted very promptly in implementing what they've recommended that we do. And now I'm looking forward to a very close partnership with the mayor and the city of Flint. Flint residents are now scrambling to find sources of safe water as fears of lead poisoning grow. Forty percent of Flint lives in poverty. Students at the nearby Davison Community Schools just posted a documentary online called Undrinkable, looking at how the Flint water crisis grew. This is an excerpt. Less than three weeks after Flint's water was declared safe and in compliance with the Safe Water Act, news leaked that researchers at Virginia Tech University had found traces of lead within Flint's water. An official press conference held on September 15th confirmed these tests at a local Flint church. The water found in some homes was three times the federal limit of lead within water. Aged lead pipes and lead soldering found in pipes are common throughout the city. 
not only in city lines, but also in people's homes, and has been for years. But why is the lead a problem now? It's the corrosive Flint River that released the lead into the water. If your house has lead pipes, if your house has copper pipes with lead solder, then there's the potential, because of the corrosivity of the water, for some of that lead to leach into the water. On September 24th, a press conference was held at Hurley to show blood test results. The percentage of children with elevated blood lead levels has increased. Um, The most striking increase um, is in the zip codes with the highest water lead levels. Lead is not something meant for the human body. It's a neurotoxin that is especially dangerous to infants and young children, as it can permanently cause brain damage and can stunt growth. It's an emergency. There is the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they routinely say there is no safe level of leads. Um, and when we saw an increase in lead levels, and then when the state um, saw that they also noticed an increase in lead levels, it's an emergency. You have to do something about it. Undrinkable, an excerpt from a new documentary produced by high school students at Davison Community Schools. That's actually filmmaker Michael Moore's alma mater. Well, for more on the crisis, we're joined by two guests in Detroit. Investigative reporter Kurt Guyette of the ACLU of Michigan is back with us. Nayir Sharif of the Flint Democracy Defense League also joins us there. And joining us um, from Virginia Tech is Professor Mark Edwards, an expert on municipal water quality who's been studying Flint's water crisis, and we'll find out in a moment why students and professors at Virginia Tech uh, in Virginia are analyzing Flint's water. But I want to start with Kurt Guyette. Kurt, take us through the chronology that takes us to yesterday, the governor once again apologizing. When the governor, the city, the state knew what they knew, why um, Flint came off of Detroit's water supply and started getting the contaminated Flint water uh, for their residents. Well, as you said in your introduction, uh, this was a decision made uh, while the city of Flint was under the control of a state-appointed emergency manager and in a purely economically driven decision. So uh, just uh, to say, state-appointed emergency manager. So you have a mayor, but Governor Snyder appointed someone over him, unelected, to run the city. Correct. And the elected officials only had as much power as that emergency manager decides to give them. Uh, Their pay is determined by the emergency manager. Uh, What authority they have, if any at all, is determined by the emergency manager. So essentially, at that point, the mayor and city council are employees of the appointed emergency manager. And the emergency managers throughout Michigan are mainly, almost overwhelmingly appointed in mainly African-American cities. Correct. Uh, The school districts and uh, cities where emergency managers have uh, been appointed, I think all except uh, one are uh, majority African-American cities and uh, school districts. And also they are a very high percentage of uh, people living in poverty. So they're uh, cities with uh, majorities, people of color, and uh, very poor cities. And they were, one of the reasons that they were pushed into the financial uh, duress that they were put in was because of cuts in revenue sharing uh, imposed by this governor. So they pretty much pushed them over the, the financial edge and then took them over. 
And these emergency managers can uh, sell off assets. They can break collective bargaining agreements. They can cut the health care benefits of retirees. They can break, uh, abolish ordinances, create new ordinances. About the only thing that the, the law says that they specifically cannot do is miss a bond payment. And so, so they, they can have, also change the water supply of a city. Correct. And that's what they did in Flint in order to save, uh, at the time, the claim was that it would save about $5 million a year. And explain and the what they shifted. They, they, they went from, uh, they had been on the Detroit system for 50 years, getting clean, safe water from Detroit. And prior to that, a decision was made that they were going to join a project to build a, a pipeline from Lake Huron to Genesee County, where Flint is, which is about 70 miles northwest of uh, Detroit. They're going to build this new pipeline. And while they're building the pipeline, in order to save money for maybe a period of like two years, the decision was made to start using the, uh, the very, very corrosive uh, Flint River. So, to uh, supply the city's water. Take us back to last February. Um, take us to uh, when people started to realize um, what was going on and uh, the EPA memo. Yes, and well, people knew from the beginning, uh, as soon as the switch was made in April of 14, that the w f water was bad. It looked bad, it tasted bad, it smelled bad. Uh, and there was all sorts of problems uh, throughout uh, 2014. In 2015, uh, one of the residents, Leanne Walters, had her water tested by the city. And the lead levels came back at over 100 parts per billion. The, of course, there's no safe levels of uh, lead whatsoever. The federal action level is 15 parts per billion. So it was about seven times what the, uh, the federal action level was. Uh, she had it tested a second time, and it came back almost 400 parts per billion. And at that point, the uh, EPA became aware of what those test results were and started sending emails to the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality asking them what was going on, asked them what was going on in terms of uh, corrosion control. Uh, Detroit had added phosphates to the water, which uh, creates a biofilm that kind of coats the pipes and keeps uh, lead particles adhered to the pipes rather than let it leach into the water. Uh, the Flint River is many times more corrosive than Detroit, so they switched to a water source that was much, much more corrosive, and when corrosion control was more needed than ever, they inexplicably stopped using it, compounding the problem. And that corrosive water without corrosion control, it just began tearing apart the pipes. And as uh, Dr. Edwards has pointed out, anybody with even a rudimentary understanding of uh, chemistry could have looked at the situation and predicted what would happen. Uh, but, and we don't know, and that's one of the questions that remain unanswered at this point, is did they take a serious look at what was going on with that river before they decided to make the switch? And it's either they didn't do that, which I would think is gross negligence, or they did do it and ignored whatever they found. But that's one of the, I think, big questions at this point that remains unaddressed.
There has just been announced a federal investigation into what has taken place here. About the same day when uh, Governor Snyder learned this, he announced a state of emergency. There are calls not only um, for uh, a demand for clean water but um, and for the governor to be investigated, but some are calling for him to be arrested. What do you feel, Nayira? Well, I feel like I feel like he should be arrested. He should be be impeached, whatever comes where we can get um, some sort of justice, because we haven't had justice. Snyder's Snyder's apology happened three months after he after we went back to Detroit. And we don't know when he actually knew that there was an issue with Flint's water. So he can take his apology and flush it down the toilet. Just two weeks ago, on December 22nd, Brad Werfel, a spokesman for the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, MDEQ, was presented with documents acquired by Virginia Tech's Mark Edwards and denied the connection between Flint's water and high blood lead levels. This is Werfel speaking by phone to a reporter with Flint's NBC affiliate. I'm saying that, that there's a difference between blood lead levels and water lead levels. Different testing, different sampling, different things. These are Appleton cars. Professor Mark Edwards, can you respond to this? Well, it was really shocking after all that occurred to hear Mr. Werfel say that. So, you know, I hope he was taken out of context. But on the other hand, it does sort of illustrate the state's sort of illogic throughout this whole uh, event, especially this small cadre of, of MDQ employees who have misled really everyone, including at, as a result of that email that was sent, the state did a, a quick assessment of what was occurring in the blood lead of Flint's children, and they found increased levels after the switch, but they didn't believe the results because, at least according to my interpretation, MDEQ was insisting that there was nothing wrong with the water. So th- this small group of employees is really... Uh, tried to head off every effort to protect Flint's children, whether it came from outside or inside the state government. On Saturday, President Obama declared a federal emergency in Flint, authorizing FEMA to coordinate responses and federal funding for a city grappling with an ongoing water crisis. A federal emergency. So according to the president's statement, quote, the president authorizes action 
with the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA to coordinate all disaster relief efforts, which have the purpose of alleviating the hardship and suffering caused by the emergency on the local population and to provide appropriate assistance for required emergency measures authorized by Title V of the Stafford Act to save lives and to protect property and public health and safety and to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in Janice County. A disaster, an emergency, the threat of catastrophe. But you know what did not happen in Flint? A hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, or any other natural disaster that happens from time to time when Mother Earth decides to remind us that she makes the rules. No, the crisis in Flint is an entirely man-made disaster. And not just man-made in the sense of mankind. This is a man-made disaster that can be traced to one particular man. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. The reason Flint, Michigan is in a state of emergency is because the city manager, who was appointed by Governor Rick Snyder, not elected by the people of Flint, made a cost-cutting decision to change the water source for the city. When the water from the cheaper Flint River corroded the city's pipes and tainted the city's water with lead and potentially poisoned the people of the city, well, none of the officials in charge, officials who report to Governor Rick Snyder, did much of any damn thing about it. So yes, there is an emergency in Flint. And the emergency is Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who has spent weeks denying, evading, minimizing, and offering ill-fitting water filters to the tens of thousands of people who are being poisoned by choices made by the officials he appointed and who report to him. On Saturday, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders added his voice to that of Flint residents calling for Governor Snyder's resignation. Thankfully, as a result of President Obama's emergency declaration, the federal government will now help provide water and other emergency items for the people of Flint. But this is the rare occasion when a disaster is not just caused by some sort of tragic set of forces we can't control. This time, the disaster has a cause and a name. Rick Snyder. Back with me at the table, Kate Dawson, National Republican Consultant and former GOP South Carolina Chair, Dorian Warren, fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, and John Nichols, Washington Correspondent for the Nation. Time for Governor Snyder to go? Uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, but I would suggest to you that we need to put this in perspective. These water wars have been going on for a while. Last summer, in the city of Detroit, people were marching through the streets of Detroit, demanding that Detroit stopped shutting off water for people in the most low-income and hardest-hit neighborhoods. And they, they did finally get that turned around. But Detroit also has been under an emergency manager system. I cannot emphasize enough, when you combine austerity economics with a shutting down of local democracy, you end up in a situation where for purposes of cost-cutting, you put people's lives in jeopardy. This is not something that a local elected government would do. And to my mind, when Rick Schneider decided that he would deal with the economic challenges of a state that has suffered a lot of deindustrialization, that has taken a lot of hard hits from trade policy, by taking power away from the people who care the most for their neighbors, who are elected by their neighbors, and putting it in the hands of technocrats who look for the way to cut costs, 
you end up with disastrous situation after disastrous situation. It isn't just Flint. I'm not diminishing Flint, yeah. but I'm saying that this is an ongoing challenge. And to my mind, Rick Schneider has shown, uh, he should have woken up to this a year ago with Detroit. You don't mess with water. It hasn't happened. And I do think it, it comes to a resignation moment. governor has been under enormous pressure and criticism for this disaster. Protests have spread from Flint itself to Ann Arbor, to the state capital of Lansing tonight, as Rick Snyder was named in two new class action lawsuits that were filed just today. And as Governor Snyder stepped to the rostrum this evening to deliver his annual State of the State address. Tonight will be a different State of the State address. There's so much we could discuss about how we can make our great state even better stronger over the next year. But tonight, I will address the crisis in Flint first and in depth. To begin, I'd like to address the people of Flint. Your families face a crisis, a crisis you did not create and could not have prevented. I want to speak directly, honestly, and sincerely to let you know we are praying for you, we are working hard for you, and we are absolutely committed to taking the right steps to effectively solve this crisis. To you, the people of Flint, I say tonight, as I have before, I am sorry and I will fix it. No citizen of this great state should endure this kind of catastrophe. Government failed you, federal, state, and local leaders, by breaking the trust you placed in us. I'm sorry, most of all, that I let you down. You deserve better. You deserve accountability. You deserve to know that the buck stops here with me. Most of all, you deserve to know the truth, and I have a responsibility to tell the truth. The truth about what we've done and what we'll do to overcome this challenge. Governor's remarks tonight in the State of the State Address, the only... Uh, micro fact check I would make in the governor's remarks there is when he said government failed you federal state and local leaders by breaking the trust you placed in us in this case local leaders were not at fault local leaders had been replaced in Flint by people who reported only to the governor they used the emergency management statute in Michigan to replace local leaders with emergency managers who reported to Rick Snyder and those are the people who made the decision that resulted in the poisoning that is how this started
am very proud of what I've done as president. But the only job that's more important to me is the job of father. And I know that if I was a parent up there, I would be beside myself that my kids' health could be at risk. President Obama speaking today in Detroit about lead-poisoned Flint, Michigan, where he's pledging federal help. Also today, as promised, Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan released his own emails about Flint from the past two years. His office says the uh, 274 pages they released today are all the emails the governor sent or received about Flint this year and last year. It begins with an email in which every single line is redacted. That wasn't an auspicious start, but uh, there is a lot to see in the rest of the documents, especially by the time outside researchers had proved that Flint really did have a problem with lead in its water, and the Snyder administration was trying to figure out why everybody was blaming them. This is to Rick Snyder from his chief of staff in late September. Subject line is Flint water. It says, quote, I can't figure out why the state is responsible. I can help you with that. It's because the state was in charge of Flint and everything happened, everything that happened in it. The, the whole time this crisis was brewing, Flint was under the control of state-appointed emergency managers, one after another. They didn't report to voters. They reported to Governor Rick Snyder. Which brings us to one more big unanswered question. Governor Snyder today released his emails from 2014 and 2015. You can tell how much pressure he's under just by his decision to reveal anything from his inbox. But he hasn't revealed everything. The governor's own timeline of the crisis shows that key decisions in this, including the decision to switch Flint's water source, the key decisions were made in 2013. The switch was enacted in 2014, but Flint's emergency manager made the decision to do it in 2013. We asked Governor Snyder's office last night whether he would also, therefore, release his emails on Flint from 2013. His office replied to us, quote, the governor's emails will be available Wednesday at michigan.gov slash Snyder. This is an unprecedented move. Well, yes, but we still would like to see the emails from the other year of the crisis. If what the governor wants is full transparency, then he is two-thirds of the way there. The final third, when the decisions were actually made to do this, I think that would probably be the doozy here. Drink the water, drink it down. This time Just now they're going to do I need some air If I'm going to live through this experience Reminds me of a clock that just won't take I want to wake up from this accomplishment But my dream is just not done, I'm late again This is a three-minute clip of a guy named Mark Aish he is the CEO of TransPro. TransPro was the company basically hired to provide a lot of the staffing for Rick Snyder's takeover of local governments. So that they, they had, uh, basically contractors come in and function as elected representatives do. Which of course was one of the primary reasons, and we know this now, we've seen the emails that were sent and circulated through the administration, Rick Snyder's administration, in terms of the problems with the water in Flint. The emails would say, ah, oh, they're complaining about the, the brown quality of the water and the smell of the quality of the water, but 
The Clean Water Act doesn't uh, require us to have the water to be cosmetically attractive. So, eh, it'll all blow over. When we get the new water system hooked up, this will just be in the rearview mirror. Nobody will care. In other words, they the per, if you want the perfect example of why it's important to have democratically elected representatives because they are as as ira, as unresponsive as we find them they are far more responsive than someone who is just plugged in there and who has a constituency of one that being Rick Snyder and here's that guy on talking to Heather Noward I don't know who she is on Fox and Friends the latest idiot there listen Listen to how they talk about this. You think the conversation is going to go in one direction after the poisoning of thousands of children, thousands of children poisoned. And you think the conversation is going to go one direction, and then all of a sudden they just turn into complete lunatics. Listen to this. So how on earth did this crisis happen in the first place? And should Flint's problems serve as a cautionary tale to the rest of the country? Joining us to weigh in, former advisor to the city of Detroit, Mark Ash. Mark, thanks for coming in this morning. Uh, the backdrop of this, to share with our viewers, serious financial problems in the state of Michigan and also in the city of Flint. When you first heard about corners being cut and this uh, toxic stuff being in the water, what was your reaction? Well, good morning, Heather. i, I got to tell you, if you... You look at the core responsibilities of government, right? The core responsibility of government is to make sure that the American people are safe. That's the core function of what government exists for. And so whether it's safe from uh, those that would do us harm, foreign and domestic, whether it's making sure that we have safe food supplies. Well, they failed to do that. They failed to do that here. And there are toxins in the water. Was that done just to save some money because of the financial problems that Flint was in? So I think if you put it in that context, the other cornerstone is obviously to have safe water. And we're in a situation in Flint where they overspent for years 60% more money than they took in every year. And what that leads to is exactly to that point where you bring in an emergency manager. You can't afford what you do today, so they go to an inferior water supply simply to save money. And this is what happens. I think the broader lesson is here is what does that mean to America, where we overspend by hundreds of billions a year? Well, unfunded we have pension a liabilities. Pause it. Did you hear that? It wasn't guys like Mark Ash who cut corners to save a buck because that's what Rick Snyder wanted. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the elected governments before them that it got them in a hole that forced that forced these people to take these uh, these emergency managers, these privatized businessmen, to cut corners. They were their hand was completely forced. And now this moron is going to talk about the U.S. government, which of course doesn't have the constraints of a city, a city which does not have the ability to raise its revenue. Right? I mean, Rick Snyder cut taxes in Michigan during this entire time. There was money there. They just decided, we're going to cut the taxes of the wealthy and to underfund the cities, the poor cities, the cities that are predominantly African-American. That's what happened.
the idea that this can be transposed, incidentally, to the United States is a joke because uh, we can print our own money. In Flint, they couldn't print their own money. They couldn't even raise their own revenues. And then this uh, idiot, um, Heather Nauert, who apparently uh, read on Breitbart there are 200 million, uh, 200 trillion underfunded. If I hear that figure again, I mean, it's going to make me just puke. Yeah, they are unfunded liabilities. In other words, we have not collected the money that we're going to pay out in 75 years to my kids' Social Security. That's correct. We have yet to collect that money. But presumably, people are going to be working until that day. And unless they all evaporate, disappear, go on a spaceship, go to Pluto, and then come back just to collect their Social Security, I don't think it's not going to be a problem. Continue. Huge problem there. Also, health care costs for retirees and lots of people just uh, fleeing the state of Michigan and moving elsewhere. Uh, but I do want to ask you about whether or not something like this could happen elsewhere in other cities that have aging infrastructure. What do you think about that? So I think you have to worry about that. Anytime we're in a situation, as you look across the country, where we have $20 trillion in debt, that puts at risk the very core responsibilities of what, of what government delivers. I think, I think where the American people are weary, you see it in Flint and you see it across the country, is being charged Ritz-Carlton-level taxes, but only getting Bates-Motel-quality government. Wow. We're, seeing that play, we're seeing that play out in Flint today. Yeah. You have to worry for the nation. We certainly do if this could happen somewhere else. You know, one more thing. You say that the government has misplaced priorities, not in terms of where they're spending their money. Yes, you say that, but also focusing on some things that they shouldn't spend their time on. Tell me about that. Well, you look at uh, you know the, the 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 debate that we want to have over climate change, for example. While we don't have the ability to provide people in Flint with clean drinking water, you know, coming here today as we all did to the studios, we had a one in nine chance of driving across a bridge that is structurally deficient, yeah. and we simply can't and, continue and to, to have these. To say that we're spending too much time on PC stuff, uh, we're going to have to leave it there, Mr. Ash. Thanks so much for joining us, having worked on in Detroit on these issues that is not a that's not from the onion uh, you know what they had the ability to deliver clean water to flint they had an incredibly almost the easiest ability they were uh, detroit said they would continue to provide that water until flint built the new t uh, pipe to lake huron the idea that somehow climate change, being concerned about climate change, inhibited Mark Ash's buddies from providing clean water to Flint is a joke. And then, of course, all the tr trouble with PC. All the political correctness that inhibits uh, providing that clean water. They, they are sociopaths. I mean, the idea of a Rick Snyder... Everyone who's ever, I, I think everybody who's any, I think anybody who's ever met the guy should be arrested at this point. Don't you try no funny business, son. I'm here to take you down. One thing left I gotta do. Sorry, son, if this offends you. But I'm afraid to say that you've been.
we've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, accountability for Snyder and restoring CDC funding to prevent lead poisoning. Michael Moore, the well-known liberal filmmaker and activist, grew up in Flint, Michigan. So it makes sense that he is the most prominent person hosting a petition calling for the arrest of Governor Snyder in the wake of the water crisis in Flint. The petition begins, quote, Dear Governor Snyder, thanks to you, sir, and the premeditated actions of your administrators, you have effectively poisoned not just some, but apparently all of the children in my hometown of Flint, Michigan. And for that, you have to go to jail. To poison all the children in an historic American city is no small feat. Even international terrorist organizations haven't figured out yet how to do something on a magnitude like this, unquote. You can sign on and add your support at michaelmore.com slash arrestgovsnyder. In addition to that, I also want to widen the scope a bit. Color of Change is using the Flint water crisis to remind us and our elected officials that Flint is far from the only community dealing with this issue. In a petition at colorofchange.org titled, Tell the U.S. Government to Restore Funding for the Center for Disease Control, Healthy Homes, and Lead Poisoning Prevention Program in the Fiscal Year 2017 Budget, they point out this widespread problem. From the petition, quote, Across the U.S., predominantly black and low-income communities are at dire risk of severe health problems caused by lead poisoning. Despite this, federal funding for the CDC's Healthy Homes and Lead Poisoning Prevention Program has been reduced by more than half. It's unacceptable. The federal government needs to take action to ensure that black and low-income communities are protected from environmental hazards that negatively affect their health and livelihoods, unquote. Congress is working on this budget right now, making this the time for action. We have the money. As usual, it is simply a matter of priorities. Sign and share the petition at colorofchange.org and let your representatives know that safe drinking water should be the highest priority. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofaleft.com. If demanding accountability and providing basic, safe drinking water to everyone matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about these petitions via social media so that others in your network can sign and share too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Today, $5 million became $80 million. And the federal government's response to Michigan's first request for help in dealing with the lead poisoning disaster in Flint, President Obama this weekend signed over $5 million worth of federal help for emergency relief. That means things like bottled water and water filters, etc. $5 million in federal help. Today, the president went much further. He announced that $80 million is on the way to help fix the water system in Flint. The president told a national conference of mayors today that the situation in Flint, in his words, is inexcusable. In last month's bipartisan budget agreement, we secured additional funding to help cities like yours build water infrastructure. Uh, And we're going to have that funding available to you by the end of the next week. And that includes more than $80 million for the state of Michigan. Our children should not have to be worried about uh, the water that they're drinking in American cities. That's not something that we should accept. 
In addition to that big jolt of new federal funding that the president announced today, late tonight, the head of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency announced a sweeping set of changes in direct response to the lead poisoning of Flint. The EPA has faced criticism for not stepping in more forcefully when they realized Flint had high levels of lead in its water, which they realized almost a year ago now. It was an EPA whistleblower, uh, one employee acting alone, who acted on his own to basically issue a warning about high lead levels in Flint. He did that last June when that one employee took that extraordinary step, basically outside the chain of command at EPA. The EPA's regional director told Flint officials at the time that this warning from this one guy from the EPA, that was just a preliminary draft. It shouldn't have been released. Now, tonight, that regional director is out. That regional director has resigned, and the EPA's administrator, Gina McCarthy, has accepted her resignation. A high-ranking EPA official who had been responsible for oversight of Michigan when Flint was poisoned, she has handed in her resignation effective February 1st. The EPA also announced today a series of steps that they say Governor Rick Snyder is required to take now to deal with the crisis in Flint. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy has given the governor one day to confirm that he will comply with this order. She also announced that the EPA will do its own sampling of lead levels in Flint and will post the results online for the public. She's also instructed all staffers at the EPA to speak up and speak out whenever they see a problem like the one that just happened in Flint. This is a very interesting new change that reflects some soul-searching at the EPA. If EPA employees see, quote, a substantial threat to health, or if the EPA could act to help, or if other authorities appear unable to help, or if high and sustained public attention is possible, if they run into a situation like that, they are to blow the whistle right away. New rule at the EPA, quote, this policy is effective immediately. In Michigan today, uh, there was this rash of headlines declaring that Congress would be holding a hearing on the Flint crisis, the United States Congress, this rash of headlines that said Governor Rick Snyder was going to be called to Washington. He would be forced to testify before Congress about Flint. And that would be a huge deal if it were true. If that was what was happening, that would be a big deal. That's not what's happening. First of all, nobody's being told to testify. Nobody's being subpoenaed. Rick Snyder was one of several people Congress, or at least a part of Congress, reportedly would like to hear from on this topic. So those headlines very quickly got revised. Rick Snyder was being invited to a congressional hearing. Uh, but then it turned out that the person requesting this supposed hearing is a Democrat on this one subcommittee of the Oversight Committee. And when you are in the minority, when you are a Democrat in a Republican-controlled Congress, you're not allowed to call hearings. Only the Republicans who are in charge can do that. So yes, this is this one Democrat on that subcommittee saying, we would love to hold a hearing on that subject, but nothing has actually been scheduled. Rick Snyder, I guess, could be invited to talk to Congress, sure, but he has not been so far, despite headlines you might have seen on that subject to the contrary today. The other news out of Michigan today concerns not lead poisoning, but a fatal outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in and around Flint, an outbreak that took place in 2014 and 2015, but we just learned about it last week. In fact, the governor said he just learned about it last week. Between June 2014 and October of last year, Genesee County, where Flint is, they had 87 cases of Legionnaire's disease. At least nine of those people died. Legionnaire's disease is it's a respiratory disease that's caused by waterborne bacteria. And the spike in that disease in Genesee County, uh, it started two months after Flint switched its water source. 
to the Flint River in April of 2014. In a new report on this Legionnaire's outbreak that was issued today, Michigan's health department says it, quote, cannot conclude that the increase is related to the water switch in Flint, nor can we rule out a possible association at this time. What we do know as of today is that the state knew about this spike in Legionnaires as of 2014, and officials discussed the possibility it could be related to the water switch in October of that year. We also know that state health officials thought the outbreak was over as of the spring of 2015, after 45 cases and five deaths. In March 2015, they said, quote, quote, this outbreak is over. But then thereafter, that was in March Excuse me, that was in May of 2015. But then thereafter, between May and October of last year, turns out it wasn't over. There were another 42 cases and four more deaths. Again, this Legionnaire spike in and around Flint is not conclusively tied at this point to the switch of the Flint water supply. But if it does eventually get tied to that, if the switch to the Flint River and the unsafe way in which they did it not only caused the lead poisoning, but also caused this Legionnaire's disease thing, then the toll that we're talking about so far, the human toll from that policy decision made by the Rick Snyder administration, the human toll is more than 6,000 kids lead poisoned in Michigan, plus tens of thousands of adults exposed to lead in Michigan, and at least nine deaths so far and counting. We just heard clips featuring Jim Hightower and Rachel Maddow from 2011 and 12, warning of the danger of anti-democratic emergency managers in Michigan, and then skipped forward to Democracy Now!, explaining how and why the water system in Flint, Michigan, was poisoned by lead. Melissa Harris-Perry talked with John Nichols about the connection between conservative policies, including austerity and the shutting down of local democracies, that led to the water crisis. Rachel Maddow commented on Rick Snyder's apology and the missing emails related to the decision made about Flint's water supply. The majority report was disgusted by Fox News' reaction to all of this. Our activism for the day is from Michael Moore's petition to arrest Rick Snyder and Color of Change's petition to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen anywhere else. And finally, Rachel Maddow pondered the possibility that the effects of the toxic water go further than originally thought. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Kate in Toronto, and I just wanted to call in with your response to Wade and um, this argument about capitalism. I think what happens a lot with conservatives and um, people who are pro-capitalism, and you really touched on it in a, in a really profound way in your response, is that there is this mixing up of capitalism and a market economy. Capitalism is the economic system where owners of production retain the capital, the capital from the production of their goods and services, so that they can put that capital into other investments, whether it's in their own company or in other companies um, by buying stocks uh, in those companies or you know government bonds when the government needs them. Then we get into these crazy things called derivatives, which are sort of neither of those things, sort of more theoretical financial instrument securities. I think what we want to get away from is the capital end of that, where so much of 
the surplus from the creation of these goods and services goes to a small amount of people. We can get rid of that by having these worker-owned cooperatives, and Professor Richard Wolff has talked a lot about the Mondragon Corporation in Spain many times, which is the largest worker-owned cooperative in the world. They have a variety of goods and services that they provide. We can democratize the means of production by having workers participate more democratically in their businesses, getting more out of what they create, and we can keep that market system. So I think with Wade's sort of thought experiment about someone who's poaching and they have to do that to survive, that person would want more of a market system where they can participate democratically in a market because the capital that's available to them is not being hoarded by a small group of people. So I think this is something that happens a lot. People who are anti-capitalist are against the capital um, sort of consolidation of these resources, not necessarily the market economy. And I think that's where sort of your encouragement to buy things that's that are secondhand, buy things from smaller producers so that the people who create those get additional profits off of how those things are produced or certainly that we don't have to expend additional resources and additional capital to create things sort of from scratch. So I would definitely encourage anyone who thinks that we want to get rid of capitalism to see the difference between capitalism and a market economy. Thanks so much. Hey, Jay, it's Keith from Brooklyn. Um, I'm just calling in uh, to share some thoughts on uh, the commentary that you shared the other day about uh, the, the subject of, of capitalism and, and, and system change. I, I, I just wanted to say I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head with your response. But one thing that I wanted to chime in on is your argument that, you know, doing away with capitalism and moving to a new economy does not mean doing away with features of the system like markets and private enterprise that most people support and that give it a lot of dynamism. And I think this is important because people tend to incorrectly equate capitalism with the idea of, of the market economy. Um, but the truth of the matter is that markets have been around since human communities started exchanging goods with one another. And one of the things that makes capitalism a unique system is that markets are the primary uh, the predominant means of organizing the system of production in society, whereas other systems might have relied more heavily on things like barter, on social obligations, or public rationing and quotas like you saw in the Soviet Union. And I think that one of the places where capitalism really goes wrong is that it assigns too big of a role to markets and private property in determining what society should value and how we should distribute those values, those valued things. So as a, as a consequence, it turns, tends to turn every social good and need into a commodity that has a price tag and an owner who can exclude other people from accessing it. So in other words, it leads to a harmful tendency to enclose and privatize everything from the environment to healthcare and even genetic material as we've seen with GMO. So I guess my, my final point is that, you know, as you already pointed out, moving away from capitalism to a better system of course, doesn't mean we have to leave markets and private property behind. Um, and I would say that, you know, while I'm an advocate for system change, I, for one, believe those things should continue to play a role in a new economic system. 
But the only difference will be that they won't and cannot dominate the way that we assign value and distribute resources going forward. So I, I'm really glad that you keep doing these shows on capitalism, Jay, because understanding what makes capitalism a unique system, I think, is really important to identifying and overcoming its problems. You know, this is a topic that progressives, I think, need to know more about in order to inform the work that they're doing on a whole range of fronts. Um, and actually, as, as you know, uh, back in the fall, I moderated an online panel for Yes Magazine and the New Economy Coalition that featured experts like Gar Alpervis, uh, who were discussing exactly what defines capitalism as a system and how it would be different from the kind of democratic, sustainable new economy that a lot of us are calling for. So I'd encourage people to check that out by going to neweconomyweek.org slash online dash panel dash series. For people who really want to dig in on this, I would also recommend that you check out a great book by the late great economist uh, Robert Heilbronner, who had taught at my uh, alma mater of, of the New School for Social Research. And the book is, in called, is, is entitled The Nature and Logic of Capitalism. It's a really great book that goes uh, in, in great detail into trying to understand what is it about capitalism that makes it a unique system. And that, you know, no matter what front that you're on, if you're calling for system change or you're somebody who even believes that capitalism should work more efficiently, the types of critiques that people like Robert Heilbronner have developed about capitalism, I think, are extremely valuable to informing uh, your understanding of these really important questions. So thanks, Jay. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, chime in on this subject and uh, keep up the great work and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick notice that I have been interviewed and that you can go listen to that interview of me on a show called Majority Villain. It's a podcast hosted by Greg. He's a listener of this show, he got in touch with me uh, quite a long time ago, let me know that he was doing this new podcast. I started listening to it. He does a great job, really interesting stuff. And so I was happy to come on and have a nice long conversation with him. And I was very glad to hear that our very long meandering, though, you know, very interesting conversation that we had got very, very nicely edited down uh, to, to a very manageable size. So if you check out majorityvillain.com or just wherever you listen to podcast. Usually you can find the podcast there. And the interview with me is the most recent one in the feed as of this recording in late January, 2016. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely check that out. I, I end up talking about things that just don't come up usually on this show because I had someone asking me questions and you know, that, that leads to different directions that I might choose to go on my own. Secondly, today, I promise that I didn't get any full-throated defenses of capitalism to put into the voicemail section today. If I had and those people had sounded, you know, halfway reasonable, I promise I would have included that perspective, but I didn't get any. I did get an email from Wade. Uh, he responded because, you know, I was, I was sort of responding to him to begin with. And uh, I, I have responses for him. I just don't have time to say them right now. I, I This episode went kind of long and wild. And uh, so that'll wait until the next episode, but I've got a little bit of 
either uh, homework for you to do or if you want to chime in on these topics, this is basically uh, what Wade was getting at. Uh, so he, he says, okay, so capitalism creates inequality. What's wrong with that anyways? Not being a smart ass, just wondering what is the problem with inequality? I've got an answer for him. If you have an answer uh, and you want to chime in, feel free to do that. And then he also asks, what do you mean by saying that capitalism rewards unsustainable growth? He says that's more to do with the people than the system. It's not the system's fault that people are voracious consumers. So I definitely have an answer to that. If you do and you want to chime in, go ahead and chime in. Uh, I would love to hear it. And and one little piece of homework, if, if you want to look this up before I tell you all about it in the next episode, Google extended producer responsibility and see what you can learn about how we can change systems, change capitalism, and deeply influence consumers' habits with an aim to save the environment uh, without turning us into a communist state or anything like that. So keep those comments coming in on capitalism, anything I just said, or anything else you want to talk about. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder why we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder why.